0: Welcome back to Talking PFAS Podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. For the next several weeks, I will be bringing you episodes recorded at the International Cleanup 2022 Conference held in Adelaide mid-September, hosted by CRC Care. I've already published two interviews recorded at the conference, Episodes 35 and Episodes 36, and I encourage you to have a listen. Today's guest is Paul Nathaniel from Nottingham, England and he runs his own company LQM which specialises in contaminated land management in England and around the world. Paul was a keynote speaker at the Cleanup Conference and in today's episode we will discuss details from his talk on PFAS. In brief, he believes we need to form an international working group to look at the entire universe of PFAS And then break this universe down into galaxies of individual PFAS substances that have more or less the same chemical properties and more or less the same toxicity properties. He will explain this in more detail in today's discussion. I would like to point out that he refers to this universe of PFAS chemicals at around 9000 at uh, the last count that I heard was 12,000. So the PFAS universe seems to be growing all the time. Now to today's chat with Paul Nathaniel. Hi Paul, Nathaniel. Nice to meet you at the Clean Up Conference in Adelaide 2022.
1: Hi Kayleen, nice to meet you. And where are you from? Uh, I live in Nottingham in uh, in England, the home of Robin Hood. Fantastic. The home of Robin Hood.
0: Lovely. So I've never interviewed anyone from Nottingham or England in the podcast before, so you are the first. I'm honoured. I'm honoured to speak with you. And where are you from? I
1: run my own company called LQM. We're 25 years old this year. And what does LQM stand for? Stands for Land Quality Management. You run that? Yep. And this is in England? It's based in England but we work all around the world.
0: That's fantastic and what do you what does your company do?
1: Uh, we're specialists in contaminated land management. How fun. It, it is it really is.
0: And uh, there is a lot of contaminated sites we've learned at this conference which you would be well aware of about 10 million is that right worldwide?
1: It depends on how you count them it, it's a big number. How do you count them anyway? Different countries count them in different ways.
0: it would depend on what they class as a
1: contaminant? It depends on the definition. All right
0: so what does your your company do?
1: We do high-level consultancy. We write a lot of technical guidance. We developed the biggest set of soil screening levels that are used in the UK. I helped write the international standard on sustainable remediation. We run training courses. We write books. And occasionally we go to conferences in far-flung places like Adelaide.
0: And then I'm lucky to get you with how busy you are for a chat on the Talking PFAS podcast, which is a delight. You're one of the keynote speakers at this year's conference. What did you speak on?
1: Well, I've given two talks, one just now about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, but the one on Monday was about PFAS.
0: Okay, let's focus there. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the summary of that talk, or what aspect of that talk would you like to discuss
1: today? So the summary of that talk was a suggestion that we need to form an international working group to look at the family of PFAS, the... Five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand that we know of that all behave differently. They behave differently chemically, they behave differently in terms of their toxicity. And it's really difficult, therefore, to work out how dangerous a particular concentration is. So the idea is to take what I call that universe of PFAS and break it down into galaxies, into families of individual PFAS substances that have more or less the same chemical properties and more or less the same uh, toxicity properties.
0: Excellent. How would you even begin to group them?
1: Well, can I take you back to my first trip to Australia, which was about 21, 22 years ago. And there was a, a speaker at the conference from the United States who talked about doing just that, but for petroleum hydrocarbons. The stuff that you find at oil refineries, gas stations, gas works. Uh, And there are millions of hydrocarbon molecules in crude oil or in coal. And they broke that down into 13 slices, 13 fractions. And at the very core of that was the ability to analyze the concentration of each of those fractions. And so that's where my inspiration comes from. It's called the Total Petroleum Hydrocarbon Criteria Working Group, team of people from public sector, private sector. And that's where the idea that we could do this. So if we look at PFAS and you look at what kind of characteristics they have, we have short-chain PFAS, we have long-chain PFAS. They behave differently. We have ones where all the hydrogens have been replaced, so we have perfluorinated, and we have some where you've still got some hydrogens attached to the carbon, so they're the polyfluorinated. At the end of the chain, we have different functional groups, So you've got the carboxylates, you've got the sulfonates, and then you've got different states. So they might be present as cations, as anions, as ions. So we're beginning to realize that this thing that we call PFAS actually has a number of different characteristics and dimensions. And if you start to unpack that, and you can begin to say, well, the solubility of short chain is this, and the solubility of long chain is that... Or you can look at them and say, the toxicology of something that's a carboxylate is something like this, but for a sulfonate, it's like that. Then you begin to be able to say, I can put some numbers against the parameters we need to do risk assessment.
0: Fantastic. And do you think grouping them could also help with treatment of them?
1: It would help in proving that the treatment has succeeded. At the moment, if you analyse a sample of soil or water... What you get is, it's a bit like an x-ray or an MRI scan. You get certain spikes, which the laboratory can tell you what it is and how much there is. And then there's a whole load of dark matter where you know how much you have, but you don't know what's in it.
0: Would that only be PFAS? Or would it be, it could be other things?
1: If you analyze a sample for hydrocarbons, then the same sort of thing occurs there as well. So we know it's PFAS but we don't know the exact size and shape and composition of the molecule. So we end up with certain individual substances that we can name, some of which we understand how they will behave, but then we've got around them similar sort of molecular weights, a whole load of other stuff that we don't know what it is. We can't analyze for it.
0: Right. How complex?
1: Well, of the 9,000 or so substances, we've got a handle on between 50 and 100.
0: That's more than I thought.
1: Yeah, that's me being very optimistic.
0: I would think so, because I think we only always hear about PFOS, PFOA, PFHXS, maybe PFBS now.
1: In the UK, the Drinking Water Inspectorate requires the suppliers of drinking water to test for 47 individual substances they've upped it recently but there's more than that that we know PFOS and PFOA that you talked about so they've both got eight carbons they are fully fluorinated so they're per and one of them has a carboxylic acid end to it and the other one has a sulfonate end to it but those two are the ones that we know the most about
0: Are they the worst culprits of the PFAS universe? They're
1: just the more famous ones. The answer is we don't know because we haven't got data on many of the other thousands.
0: Yeah. Why did they get all the attention in the first place?
1: Because they have properties that we wanted to exploit. They were used in firefighting foams. They were used as part of the raw materials to make waterproofing, fireproofing materials. The kind of coatings you find in your fast food wrappers... Very widely used. So
0: because of their widespread use, that's how they became famous. Because then when we found out that some PFAS are persistent, because not all, right?
1: The, The longer chains are much more persistent than the short chain ones are. And so you're absolutely right. It worries me when people talk about PFAS as a class, because they're a bit more varied than that.
0: Yes, and I've tried in this podcast, as the podcast has progressed... I say some PFAS and I've talked with experts because not all PFAS behave the same. So if we do find out that one perhaps could be harmful at high levels, it doesn't mean they all are. But they're all persistent, I keep hearing.
1: They're not all persistent.
0: You don't agree with that? No. Okay. I wonder why people say that.
1: Because PFOS and PFO have been kind of labelled as forever chemicals and they are really difficult to break down. The reason is that the strength of that carbon fluorine bond is so high that the energy you need to put to break it is difficult to generate. Right. But if you've got shorter chain then they are less persistent.
0: So I just published an episode today with Professor Ian Cousins. Have you read his latest paper? He says they're all persistent. Okay. So I'm just querying... Why do you say they're not? What, where's the evidence?
1: We have evidence in the literature that some of the, the smaller chain ones are more amenable to being broken down. They're more amenable to having the fluorine removed from them yeah. as opposed to the longer chains, the 8, the 9, the 10 carbon chain ones.
0: I've talked with some people in the expo there that do remediation or have remediation methods and if they're getting results that are 95 or 98% success rates... Do we need to start talking about treated PFAS versus non-treated PFAS? I don't know.
1: You might want to talk about treatable, but but you you talked about a 95 or 98% reduction. The problem that we have is that you'd think that taking away 95% of of a bad thing is, is okay. But if you are still above what would be seen to be as a safe level, then the fire is still burning. That's a really bad analogy because they were used as firefighting foams. But It's
0: very visual for listeners. So let's go back to your universe grouping. I'm sure you have a little bit more that you wish to say on that.
1: I think at the moment, we've seen this in the conference for the first two or three days. Today's the third day. Everybody is struggling with the idea of not knowing what we have and not knowing how little is okay. So we know if we've got high concentrations, we have a problem, and there are a variety of techniques on how to at least reduce some of the mass that the 95% reduction yes. you talked about or to get quick results or to get quicker results. What we don't have is a confident level below which we can say that that's okay, we can live with it. The, the toxicologists would say there is no appreciable risk to human health. We don't have enough information to be able to say that. And what we need, and going back to the universe idea, is we know that the short chain and the long chain PFAS have different toxicities. We know that if something is present, as absorbed onto the soil stuck onto the soil particles it will have a different behavior than something that is dissolved in the water so if you know where these things are you've got an idea of how bioavailable they're going to be when you inadvertently eat some soil or or drink some water which has got PFAS in it they need to be able to interact with your body to do harm to you
0: and also it's important to mention that short chain PFAS do have shorter half lives in the body Correct. But we still don't know whether they could do damage in-
1: While they're there. Because
0: they're harder to detect, correct?
1: Yeah. Going back to the idea of the universe and the galaxies, what we need is to find a way of identifying subsets of the universe that broadly behaves in the same way. So you can do it by short and long chain. So as a starter, Mm -hmm. you could then look at what's tacked on to the end of the carbon chain the CWOH, the carboxylates, the sulfonates. So we've now got four divisions. You can then start looking at whether you've got fully fluorinated or partially fluorinated, the precursors. So we've now got eight divisions. But the important thing is there's no point in doing that theoretically. You need the laboratory to be able to give you the concentrations on each of those galaxies, of the analogy I'm using. But a pigeonhole might be another analogy. So we know what we want as risk assessors, but we need the laboratories to be able to deliver to us concentrations for those groupings of substances. I want to know milligrams of PFAS per kilogram of soil or micrograms of PFAS per litre of water.
0: Right. And what type of PFAS it is?
1: Well, the point is, let's assume we come up with 16 galaxies, 16 fractions. I need to know the concentration in fraction one, fraction two, fraction three. So that's where the analysts need to work with us to tell us what is the art of the possible.
0: That seems like a hard task because as we just said there's the dark matter components as well that they cannot at this point explain. The black holes.
1: (laughs) Yeah the the dark matter yeah. So we have two tools up our sleeves well the the labs do, the laboratories do. One is total organic flooring. So the laboratories can tell us this is the mass of fluorine that you've got in organic forms attached to carbon. So that gives us an aggregate, a very crude indicator of how much PFAS we could have. We can test for individual substances like PFOS, PFOA and so on. So we know how much mass of fluorine we've got with known substances. So we know what is in the dark matter. The other tool that we've got is something called the top assay, which tells us Something about the total amount of PFAS that could form per fully fluorinated compounds.
0: Is that because uh, they can break down because of precursors? Has that got anything to do with that?
1: That They are precursors. So these are polyfluorinated that could change into fully fluorinated per substances.
0: Right. So the top assay is looking at precursors mainly?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, it tells you in your sample how much of PFOS or PFOA could be formed from the precursors that you've got in your sample. Right, great. So we're, we're beginning to see, in a quite a fuzzy way, into that dark matter by using a variety of non-targeted methods of analysis. We're, we're beginning to see, in, in a very fuzzy way, different areas of light, if you will, within the universe. And the, the method that the top assay and the total organic fluorine are what are called non-targeted methods of analysis. So I know I've got something, but I don't know what it is. But by looking at the, the intersection, if you will, the combination of top assay result, total organic fluorine, and there are a few others, we begin to be able to resolve to see better than any one of those test methods individually would give us.
0: And, of course, with more knowledge becomes the ability for more solutions, right? When you can actually see with greater clarity the behaviour of these groups.
1: Correct. You can diagnose the problem better to to switch to a medical analogy rather than uh, Mm. the astronomical one I've been using.
0: And then you can also, uh, I imagine, characterise those groups as in these are the top five we need to focus our attention on now. Is that that the purpose?
1: The purpose is to characterize the entirety of the PFAS in your site.
0: And how will that help the PFAS problem? Well,
1: it will help us decide whether or not we need to do remediation. Is the risk too high? And it would also help us to track how remediation is proceeding. And therefore, when can you stop? When have you got down to a level where where the risk is low enough and the site is now safe?
0: Yes, because we are talking about... Uh, millions of dollars here aren't we in remediation
1: it's more than millions billions yes
0: it's very expensive but I imagine you also would be able to then with more study some of those groups you might say well there, these could be problematic but for now we can focus on x y and z groups No. No? You need to
1: focus on all of them? You do, because ultimately what you're going to say to somebody is, you can live on that land, you can work on that land, and you and your family are going to be safe. You can't say... Well, we know that you're okay with respect to 95% of the universe, but we're not sure about the other 5%. We don't know. I wouldn't want to live with that degree of uncertainty.
0: Right. So all of these groups, you're not saying, uh, let's just group them and then just pick the top groups. No. You're not saying that. You're saying, uh, let's just group them to make addressing the challenge of these PFAS groups possible. Correct. Easier. Yeah. But all of them need equal attention
1: they all need to be looked at yes and that's what we've been able to do historically with the petroleum hydrocarbons so we've got a mixture of millions of isomers of different arrangements of carbon and hydrogen and we can look at all of them through 13 different lenses 13 different fractions
0: and how long did that take that process
1: i wasn't part of the working group but it took a few two or 3 years it wasn't oh. very long
0: what do you expect if how long this process may take And what's required? I mean, do the analytical people need more training to be able to do this, or have they already got the skills?
1: So let me answer that in two bits. Yes, please. Today is 2022. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that CRC Care want to hold cleanup in 24. That happens every two years. So the idea would be to get together a group of people and come back and report back in two years' time. And I think that's a reasonable time frame. Uh, in terms of what do we want from the laboratories, that's always a conversation to be had because the development of a new method and one that is, has a standard methodology that can be applied in Australia, in the UK, in North America, is, is an expensive and time-consuming process. So they need to know that it's worth their while investing in that because ultimately I'm going to come along and say, well, here are my samples of soil and groundwater. Please test them using your new method. And so that's a conversation to be had with them of what is possible and then what is affordable and then what is doable in a reasonable timescale.
0: Yes, because I imagine, I've heard from some of the labs, their work is you know tripled or doubled because of PFAS it's just it's growing all the time yeah. so I, I I wonder how they will stretch to the capacity of this
1: they will stretch if there is a demand for it the concentrations they are able to test down to their limits of quantification are mind-blowing
0: they're very smart people aren't they
1: they're, they're smart people um, they've got some really good equipment um And we give them difficult media, difficult things to test. Water is the easier one, but then we give them soil. And the soil might be sand or silt or clay or rubble from a building site. Um, We've been working one of the laboratories looking at concrete.
0: PFAS leaches through concrete, doesn't it?
1: It does to a certain extent. The fact that I can analyse water doesn't mean that that method can then immediately be used on soil or biosolids or or crush concrete. So they've got some thinking to do. And again, going back to the inspiration for this, which is petroleum hydrocarbon criteria working group, you had risk assessors and chemists working alongside laboratory chemists and analysts. And that's what you need. So I know what information I want, but I want doesn't necessarily get.
0: Where does regulation fit into this idea that you have?
1: So the regulators are faced with their real problem because there is varying degrees but concern among society about these chemicals. It's quite high here in Australia, it's less heightened in other parts of the world but the concern is there and the problem that we have by not being able to understand how all of these chemicals behave means that the regulator doesn't know what a safe level is so they can't regulate and say you've caused a problem sort it out and more importantly they can't now say yes you've sorted it out they can tell you you've got a problem but they can't tell you or the society that they are accountable to yep we identified the problem we made them do it and it is now okay it's it's that low level that is difficult to define at the moment, and that's the regulator's challenge.
0: And while we're on this topic, there are a lot of people out there that want PFAS banned as a class. We know that they have some essential uses in society and a range of other medical applications as well. I won't go into them here, but there are some essential uses. So what's your opinion on the language of, let's just ban them as a class, let's just get rid of all PFAS?
1: Let's just imagine tomorrow, Every PFAS was banned and they were instantly removed from the supply chain. You couldn't buy them in the supermarket. You wouldn't find them in your electronics tomorrow. That doesn't make my job any easier because we've already released PFAS into the environment. We can find it in the Arctic, in the Antarctic. We can find it in the deep oceans. We can find it in the sea spray. So even if it was all instantly removed tomorrow, which isn't going to happen... Our area, the area that cleanup is looking at, soil and groundwater pollution, we've still got to clean up the mess that we've already made. That's true. So there are efforts to do that. There are attempts to define what you must use PFAS for. And society has decided that we need those particular services or functions. And what, quite honestly, you don't really need to use it. And and if it was taken out of that particular product, well the world would carry on surviving quite nicely, thank you very much.
0: Do you agree that they should be banned as a class or not at all? Or do you think perhaps in the future that might be necessary?
1: At the moment, they are serving essential purposes that I think we, as a society, as, as a species, we would be unwise to, to ban. Now, you talked about sometime in the future. What we're seeing is that as some of the individual substances are banned, replacements are brought in to do the same thing. And we're now beginning to realise that some of those are problematic.
0: Yes, yeah, like Gen X.
1: Well, the Gen X chemicals are one that has recently had a health advisory published by the US Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah. But we've been here before. When we took lead out of petrol, lead was very bad. We took it out of petrol. But what we replaced, we then realised was itself problematic. So as a species, we're really good at being creative and innovative. but Sometimes the solutions to a problem bring their own problems with them.
0: So green chemistry may not be all it's cracked up to be?
1: Green chemistry will be much, much better than what we have at the moment. The idea of a circular economy where you make something, you use it, And when it ceases to be able to carry on being used, you you take it apart and you put the, the raw ingredients back into something else. That will make a big difference. That's changing the way that we design and manufacture things. So rather than manufacturing to use as little as possible... We manufacture so that we can break it apart and disassemble it and recover the stuff that we've put into it, into our mobile phones or whatever it is. So you can actually take those apart and then reuse them for the next.
0: Like a Lego model, you can pull it to bits and build something else. Exactly. But the challenge with PFAS in the circular economy, there is a challenge, isn't there? Yeah. With many of the products that have PFAS in them, can we recycle them?
1: We can reuse some materials, We can recycle some materials. The big problem that we have is that for some individual substances, there are very strict limits on what you can dispose of in a landfill site. And so the only alternative at the moment is to put those materials through a really high temperature process to break apart the PFAS molecules. And and that's fine if you're dealing with a particular concentrated product, a coated textile But if you've got low levels in excavated soil in a former industrial site, then actually you've got to put tons and tons of material to a very high temperature to deal with a very small mass of PFAS.
0: Does that create more greenhouse gases doing
1: this? It creates all sorts of problems, um, depends on how you heat things. But the answer is it's really expensive and it has its own knock-on effects.
0: It's not about PFAS, but I think you had a slide, was it your talk, where they... ...poured engine oil into the
1: ground? It was, yes.
0: Could you just maybe describe that example?
1: Okay. This was a a diagram from a 1963 manual on what to do when you change the oil in your car or your motorcycle. And the advice was, in those days, you would have a, a little nut at the bottom of the oil sump. You'd unscrew that. The dirty oil would fall into a bucket, into a container. And the advice was... Dig a hole in your garden, fill it with gravel, and then pour your used engine oil into the gravel, and then cover it with a thin layer of topsoil, and it'll go. And then the wording of the manual was, it will disappear into the ground. Now, that's fine, because what we now do is we go in to take samples, and we find the used engine oil. There was a guy, Barry Commoner, who came up with various laws of ecology, and the one I really like, and I talked about it on Monday... Is there is no away. When you say, I'm going to throw something away, I'm going to throw my engine oil away into the ground, there is no away. Okay, so that's pretty
0: bad and pretty bad advice and created lots of work for people that are in
1: remediation. But where have we improved as a society? We've improved enormously. So let's take the engine oil example. You would now take your engine oil. It would be collected, it would be filtered to take away the small shards of metal that have collected in it, and that can be reused. Like at a chemical
0: clean-up that your local
1: council advertises? Yeah. I'm currently working on a historic landfill site where, pre-1974 in England, there was no control. And I'm finding in it food wrappers priced in the old pounds, shillings and pence. Oh, they don't
0: break down.
1: No, you can get these plastic bottles and plastic crisp bags and so on, and you can read it as clear as anything. So we've improved in recycling. We've improved in separating or keeping separate different materials. We're improving in terms of having deposits for plastic bottles, glass bottles.
0: Yes, and separating our bins for the general public. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: If I had to do one thing, it would be aluminium cans because the process of making aluminium from bauxite, from ore, is really energy intensive.
0: Is your expertise just PFAS?
1: No. I I would say I'm a, a risk assessor. You mentioned Ian Cousins. Ian's been working on PFAS for... 20 years. 20 years is the figure I had in mind, but I didn't want to label him, but yeah. So I would say that someone like Ian Cousins has really delved deeply into PFAS. But no, I deal with land contamination in general. And if I go on to a a brownfield site, I may have to deal with PFAS and asbestos and chlorinated solvents and hydrocarbons... And they've all got their own character and problems and different ways of being treated.
0: When you come to a conference like this, are you encouraged about the future? Or are you overwhelmed by the problems that we have? When we hear figures like 10 million contaminated sites, are you overwhelmed or encouraged? Am I allowed to be both? Yes. What overwhelms you? about the state of the global contamination issues that we have?
1: Okay, I think what overwhelms me is the fact that we have really good information that what we're doing as a society is not wise, and yet we carry on doing it. And what encourages me is some really cool ideas that emerge, some new people coming into the sector young PhD students, people beginning their careers. There are people around who will be able to deal with this when I'm long gone. So I'm encouraged by new tools, new techniques and new people coming in.
0: And what is needed when we think about all governments around the world? What do they need to do in this picture? Do we need more funding? How can they help?
1: It's a really good question. I think the answer is they need to have an honest conversation with their societies, with their communities, and help them understand that there is a choice to be made. And if you want to have grease-proof papers around your fast food, well, ultimately, you're going to have to pay more for your drinking water because your water companies have to pay more to provide you with wholesome water, is the language that's used in UK legislation. In a way, you can have anything you want, But you can't have everything. Yes. And that honest dialogue between governments and their populations needs to happen.
0: So we can pay now or we can pay later.
1: Yeah. But the question really is, how would my quality of life be affected if some of the things that we're currently using PFAS for we no longer there. Such as? Uh, I think the obvious one is quite a lot of the packaging that things that we buy comes in. It's there for a purpose, it's there for security, for attractiveness, making sure the stuff arrives at my house and in a safe way. But there might be other ways of doing it.
0: I've interviewed someone in this podcast, Julia Gluger from Switzerland, and she has a paper that shows 200 uses currently for PFAS, and some of these uses blew my mind, like guitar strings. Yeah. Who would have thought there's PFAS in those, right? There's lots of uses, but we could probably find another type of guitar string that doesn't need PFAS. Yes. Another wax for the uh, skis that doesn't need PFAS. Exactly.
1: Maybe people don't need to go skiing, but maybe that's a bit too revolutionary. There's a paper that came out a few months ago that has looked at PFAS in rainfall, and we are seeing levels of PFAS in rainfall that is higher than some of the drinking water standards in some parts of the world.
0: Yes, in the episode I just released today with Ian, he does mention in his paper that in the results that they got from the countries they tested, PFOA was over those new proposed health advisories by US EPA. Okay,
1: so let's come back to those just for a second. Yes. You're absolutely right. They are... Health advisories. And they're only interim. Well, the PFOS and the PFOA one are only interim. But those health advisories, they they are not currently being used by the US EPA. Yes, that's correct. That's not their role. And I've got two observations on those. One is they are ultimately founded on one particular study and there's a question about whether that study is sufficiently representative to inform risk assessment around the globe.
0: This is Philip Grungian's um, study with immune effects for children?
1: In the Faroe Islands, absolutely.
0: High consumption
1: of seafood? Correct. The question is, is the child in the Faroe Islands with the different diet and climate a good enough model for a child in Adelaide or Nottingham or New York. If that's what you're basing your toxicology on, that's what you're essentially saying. And the second thing is that the process of going from a health advisory to what the US EPA calls an an MCL, a maximum contaminant level, includes two tests. The first is can we achieve that concentration, that MCL? Do we have the technology to bring us down to below that concentration? And can we test at that concentration? And the second one is, can we afford it? So they come up with health advisories and then they use those to develop, derive MCLs, which are concentrations we can measure, concentrations that we can remediate down to, and that are affordable. And at the moment, the health advisories... Are purely calculated numbers. The EPA itself says we can't test down to those levels. They are near zero. Mm. And so they are mathematically derived numbers that a laboratory cannot tell you that you are below.
0: So you're saying you're not sure they'll even pass because they're out for comment right now, aren't they?
1: They will not be the numbers that will be regulated to unless there's a huge breakthrough in what analytical laboratories can test down to.
0: Yes, because it has to be achievable. What's the point
1: in having a number? It's a meaningless number because you cannot prove that you are below it.
0: Okay. what about their proposed rule that's on the Federal Register right now that was uh, in a document which I have linked in my current podcast episode, on the 6th of September in the Federal Register, the US EPA document, it's quite long, goes into some health effects and and the reasons why they want to list PFOS and PFOA as hazardous substances under the circular law. And if that happens... I've spoken to a Boston lawyer who said it could open up Superfund sites that in the past weren't required to test for PFAS and now they might have to. What's your opinion on their proposed rule which is out for comment until the 7th of November this year?
1: In the United Kingdom, we don't have a magic list. Of chemicals, our equivalent to circular talks about substances in, on, or under the land that either cause significant harm to health or significant pollution of surface water and groundwater. So I don't need a magic list of chemicals. To have to have thought about PFOS, PFOA or whatever. It's an entirely artificial consequence of the way the circular legislation has been developed in the United States. So in the UK, back in the early 1990s, the Department of the Environment published a series of advisory booklets for different land uses about what contaminants to expect at former gasworks sites, manufacturing sites and so on. One of them was airports and in there they talk about fluorinated surfactants. So back in 94-95 if you were doing your desk study, your preliminary risk assessment, that was the guidance that you ought to have been looking at as a matter of course and you should have at least flagged up the presence of fluorinated substances which in the airport case would have been used for firefighting purposes. And I think that the UK system is really powerful because You don't have the defence of PFOS isn't on a magic list and therefore you can't regulate.
0: You work in um, the area of remediating contaminated land. Is that right? Investigating and remediating.
1: Investigating, Investigating. assessing and then remediating.
0: Okay. So if USA EPA does pass this proposed rule, if it gets promulgated, what are the impacts likely to be for other countries?
1: For the UK none whatsoever and and the reason is because we're already looking at PFOS and PFOA both to make sure that our land is safe for the next use and also for uh, the equivalent to Circular which is part 2a of the Environmental Protection Act 1990.
0: But you don't only work in the UK right? No I work around the world. So it could have impacts for you and the type of work that you do
1: as a risk assessor, the first step of any risk assessment is working out what's the legal context that you're working under. So if I go work in a country where they have chosen to adopt a model similar to the American one, then that's what you work to.
0: Right. Could present more
1: challenges. It will just change the exam question we're having to answer.
0: So if we circle back to the universe that we started with, because we're wrapping up, if you get this working group together, what did you call the working group?
1: The PFAS Criteria Working Group. The
0: PFAS Criteria Working Group. If that assembles and starts its work, subgrouping these little galaxies of PFAS universe, and these regulations do eventually get passed, because it's predicted that they will.
1: I'd be amazed if they don't.
0: So if they do, will the working group with these subgroups will that make life easier if the regulation and the laws change to be more restrictive
1: it won't make any difference won't it no because going back to my astronomical example we're talking about pfos and pfoa being added to the list of substances that the epa will regulate under
0: okay and they're already out there
1: they're already out there and even if they're added, there are thousands of others that won't be on that list. So the federal law, circular, may not catch them. But when you start looking at some of the brownfields legislation in the states, when you start looking at civil actions, the equivalent to common law in the United Kingdom, then there isn't a list. If what I'm doing on my land is harming you, I can't say, yes, but my, my substance that's harming you isn't on a list, so you're not, I'm not liable. Right. If I'm harming you, I am liable.
0: Interesting. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Is there anything else that you would like to add on the PFAS discussion?
1: I want a promise from you that in two years' time, if this thing works, that you'll interview me again and we can see how things have gone.
0: Okay, I think I will stick with this podcast for that long. I hope I have a sponsor by then, actually. Just going to put that out there so that I actually get some money for my work. There we go. Anyone want to sponsor me, just contact me. But it's been fascinating talking with you today, Paul, on the Talking PFAS podcast. And thank you for being my guest and giving me so much time and so much knowledge that you've shared here. And I think our listeners will be really pleased.
1: Real pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and please do share. I also encourage you to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. The next episode of Talking PFAS will be another discussion from Clean Up Conference in Adelaide, which will be published in a week. I was fortunate at the Clean Up Conference to finally get some people that work in the area of PFAS remediation, mainly in Australia, but also around the world. And I'll be bringing you some of those great discussions in the coming weeks. Please do share today's episode on social media and via email to colleagues, friends, But please note, all information in today's episode is copyright, so please contact me for reuse or republishing permissions at talkingpfas at gmail.com. And I also want to give a very big thank you to all the people that email me, frequently telling me how much you enjoy the podcast. I really do love receiving those emails. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.